0: Today, there's so many film buffs, so many autograph collectors out there that no, nobody from the past is going to be forgotten. There's always going to be people desperate to talk to them, desperate for their autograph. But back, you know, when I was here in La- first in Los Angeles in the early 1970s, it wasn't quite the same. You could, It was easier to, to meet people and interview them.
1: Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebbert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Lillian Gish called him our preeminent historian of silent film. We talked to the legendary film scholar Anthony Slide, first about Reginald Denny, soon to be represented by a new DVD Blu ray set from Kino Lorber, and then about his own long career and more than 80 books. But first, You want to be here for our 80th episode whenever that happens, right? Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you want to support Nitrateville Radio becoming more widely known, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. I've known Anthony Slide's name since I was a kid reading everything I could find on old movies in my public library. He co-wrote the 1975 book The Films of D.W. Griffith and others with Edward Wagonecht, a noted scholar who was old enough to have seen Griffith's films when they came out. For that reason, I assumed that Slide was ancient too. In fact, he was 44 years the junior to his co-author one of the breed of new film scholars who revolutionized film studies in the 1960s and 70s. And in a more than half century career, he's written an astounding 80 books on every aspect of silent film and some of sound too, as well as producing magazine articles, documentaries, film festivals, and more. I'd always figured he'd be a guest on Nitrateville Radio one of these days, and I got the perfect pretext in Kino Lorber's release The Reginald Denny Collection, three comedies starring the debonair-like comedian, Restored by Universal. The release, which comes out August 25th, will include commentary tracks by Slide for all three films. So in Part 1 of our conversation, we'll talk about that release and Reginald Denny. In Part 2, we'll talk about Anthony Slide himself and a career that has changed the way we all look at vintage film. So Universal is engaged in a major restoration project, trying to find their own films, which is a nice change from the days when they used to burn them to make a nice show <laughs> for everybody. And... Um, And you're involved in the Kino releases of a number of those, uh, doing the the commentary tracks, including, I just noticed, uh, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and the three-film Reginald Denny set. So let's talk about uh, these Universal
0: films. Okay. Uh, Well, I mean, basically understand that I don't have any sort of choice or say in what Kino Lorber releases Um, And I really, in a way, don't have any say in what they ask me to to comment on. They'll they'll just contact me and say, do you want to do this or do you want to do that? Uh, And that's the way it goes. So, yes, I mean, I had been aware for for a couple of years or more that Universal was restoring its silent films, which is wonderful because um, studios don't usually do this. And Universal is using the latest digital technology. They're doing 4K restoration. Um, sadly, of course, uh, many of their films do not survive in the silent era, and those that do are uh, usually survive only on sixteen mm So in some cases, they're having to use sixteen millimeter prints as their source material.
1: The ones that you're involved with right now, I'm particularly interested in the Reginald Denny set. Tell us who it, who who he was.
0: Well, okay, I must I must say I'm sort of amazed in a way that there actually will be a box set of the films of Reginald Denny. I would never have believed this, <laughs> say, say, 10 or 20 years ago, that anybody cared. I mean, I think it's sort of wonderful in a way that they've, they've put together um, a, a set of three of his films, I guess, in a way, the most important features in the 1920s, The Reckless Age, What Happened to Jones and um, Skinner's Dress Suit um i suppose some people might argue california straight ahead should be there or that's my daddy which he also wrote which has quite a fan base but anyway it's nice that they're doing these um free features reginald denny of course is an englishman who always played americans on screen in the silent era he was in a way the quintessential sort of um, american husband um he was a light comedian a farceur, i suppose didn't really have a lot of charisma, but you sort of had an empathy with him. He was sort of a nice guy, and you sort of knew he was a nice guy. And I think that's why sort of he appealed to both women and men. Um, he's not, you know, he's not a great comedian. He's not a Keaton. He's not a chaplain. Um, and if, he, if um, he's similar to any major comedian, it's probably Harold Lloyd, because they, they tend to play similar sorts of characters, although he doesn't have any sort of you know any sort of tricks up his sleeve like walking up buildings or whatever yeah. <laughs> um, so um sort of Denny, sort of a, a light comedian. In a way, he, they're always domestic comedies, and I guess in a way he's a successor to the um, domestic comedies used to have in the 1910s with Mrs., Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew and Mr. and Mrs. Um, Carter de Haven, um, except that that um, Denny doesn't always have the same leading lady. They vary from film to film, although primarily it seems to be the Plant that he works with.
1: And how did he get into films in the first place? Because I understand that he was originally like a collegiate boxer. Um,
0: well, I mean, he came from a theatrical family. His father was a fairly well-known actor uh, on the British stage. Uh, and Denny actually made his um, stage debut uh, about the age of um, six or seven, um, So it it, it wasn't sort of unusual that Denny should have followed a a stage career, Um, and for that he actually took his father's name. His birth name is Doug Moore, but he calls himself Reginald Denny. Um, And and yes, um, it was really boxing that brought him into films. He'd already, he'd been on the stage in the 1910s, and he'd made some films um, in the late 1910s, 1920, and then he and director Harry Pollard um, got together and decided to make a series of boxing films. Um, um, oh, God, what, are they, what were they called? The Leather the Pushers. The Leather Pushers, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was sort of really happenstance. They made the films, first of all, uh, at um, Universal's Fort Lee Studios, and, and Denny tried to get somebody at Universal interested. Well, eventually, Carl Lemley did see the films. He did like them, and he signed um, Denny to a, to a five-year contract. Now, why was Jenny a boxer? Well, um, he had been in the um, Royal Flying Corps during World War One, and and really uh, became one of the leading um, amateur boxers while there. Um, uh, earlier, apparently, um, he, he'd been bullied a bit at school or bullied a lot at school, and so he'd taken up boxing to defend himself. Hmm. Um, in the feature films, I'd uh, don't think he ever played a box. I might be wrong, um, but there is actually, in the Reckless Ages, an incredibly great fight scene that goes on forever. So he, you can see really how good he is at fighting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the keys to so many of these comedians and, and light stars was that they did have, they really had chops in terms of physicality, and, and so they were credible when the... Action built up to you know mm-hmm. the climax of a film. Mm-hmm. It was it was one way of carrying a film was to be able to have that sort of action at the end after being a more likable character along sure. the way.
0: Yeah, I mean he's definitely athletic. You can see that from his films. Um, you know, for example, there's a scene in um, Well Skinner's dress suit where he. Where he's running to catch a train and misses it. But I mean, he's really putting on some speed there as he runs. He's a good yeah. jogger. <laughs> um, so, and also, of course, in um, what is it, Skinner's Dress suit. he dances the Savannah, um, whatever it's called, the Savannah, um, God, what is it called? The, Savannah, the since Savannah I've seen it. And the Savannah Shuttle. Okay. I'll get it right eventually. I'm getting old. I apologize. <laughs> Things slip out of my mind very easily anyway so he's a good dancer as well uh, you know and and um, you know he takes care of his body obviously and he's a very athletic man he he liked to go um um boating he, he would you know fish out in the ocean um, and of course he also liked to fly planes as well
1: right he has a whole later career as as kind of a, a very american thing then uh, he was a tinker with model airplanes and that that led to an entire career as well. Yeah, I
0: mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that briefly, but I mean, it is sort of amazing in a way that uh, he'd always, of course, been interested in flying. He'd been, in the, as I said, in the Royal Flying Corps during World War I, and he owned a couple of biplanes, which he actually loaned to Howard Hughes for Hell's Angels. And um, the story goes that um, a neighbor's kid was playing with his model plane and, and um, broke it, and then he managed to repair it. And about 1934, Denny decided to open a hobby shop on Hollywood Boulevard, Reginald Denny hobby shop, um, where he sold model planes. And um, that's really where his professional involvement with um, flying began. Um, He started to, to build what are now called drones, and he, in a way, built some of the first drones, which really didn't look like today's drones. They looked more like little planes. And, uh, but he realized that the, the, the military potential of drones, that they might be useful in warfare. And he really pushed the government to, take, you know, to get involved, which they did um, at the outbreak of World War II, with, with Denny, Denny very much in the lead. And, and might I say, if you really are interested in the subject, um, Denny's granddaughter, Kimberly Pucci, has written a book called Prince of Drones, which goes into his um involvement with drones in very very great detail, perhaps a little too much detail <laughs> but um but you know if if you really care it's all there,
1: yeah i don't know what the uh <laughs> The overlap of silent film fans and uh, model aircraft fans I mean, uh,
0: quite is. Uh, yeah, too. no, I don't think there's. A, I always like the idea also of Reginald Denny opening a shop on Hollywood Boulevard. Right. Yeah. You know, I like. Can you imagine today Russell Crowe or Sean Penn <laughs> opening a shop on Hollywood Boulevard and actually having to deal with, with all the, the alcoholics and the homeless people <laughs> drifting into the stores on the Boulevard? Right.
1: Um, all right, well, let's go back to... Now, the one I have seen so far, because I haven't seen the set yet, it, but I saw Skinner's Dress Suit at a festival some years
0: ago. And... Yeah, I mean that's the most important of the films, really.
1: Well, tell me why.
0: Well, because I think it's the most it's the most famous of Reginald Dennis silent films. And I, and I find it sort of interesting that it's the one film, really almost the only silent film, that's always been available for viewing since the 1920s, because... Um, Universal and Bell and & Howell put it out on 16mm in 1927 for for rental to people who had show-at-home um, projectors um, who, who wanted to rent show-at-home films. And this was one of the first available. So it was there in the 1920s, 1930s, available on 16mm, long before you know most um, commercial films were available on 16mm. And then, of course, uh, once um, the video came in, the, the film had fallen into the public domain, so quickly got put and picked up for video release, then DVD release, and now we have a new restoration of it. So it's almost like since the 1920s, the world has not existed without Skinner's dress suit. <laughs> in fact, a friend of mine, Richard Kozarski, the, the historian, said, How could you have lived in New York in the 1960s and 1970s and not seen Skinner's dress suit? Because, like every film society, like the Theodore Huff Society, that William K. Everson ran, all of them, always showed Skinner's dress suit.
1: Right, well it is, it's a total crowd pleaser, a very likable Mm -hmm. film Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it has kind of a quintessential 1920s plot, which is that it is about kind of rising in social status uh, maybe a bit ahead of your financial resources, but nevertheless, uh, you know, personal charm making it all come out right in the end, so yeah, tell tell me about that. Well
0: there's a lot lot of, you know, there's a Laura LaPlante and Reginald Denny are ideally suited to each other to play a married couple. And of course, it's, it's Laura LaPlante who's sort of quietly encouraging Denny to ask for a pay raise. And, um, you know, that's really what the whole plot revolves around. Denny wants a pay raise. Um, the boss says no. But Denny and his wife, and later sort of become um, friendly with. The, um, somebody who's going to put a lot of money into the business. And so Denny is eventually taken on as a partner. That's basically the plot. It doesn't sound very appealing. And in a way, it's not a very appealing plot. But it's, the <laughs> way, it's the way it's presented that, that matters. It's also got not just um, not just um, Laura Plant and Reginald Denny. It has Hedda Hopper. Who I always think is very good um, in, in character roles in the 1920s. She really is very appealing here, and it also, of course, has Arthur Lake fairly early in his career as well, and and you can see why why Carl Lemley signed him to a contract because he's very good.
1: Well, and it's interesting. It is kind of on the same lines as you know the Blondie comic strip in terms mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the the rising you know the the couple who are. The middle class couple who have, you know, the opportunity to rise, but also some neurosis about how things are going for themselves and all that. Yeah. So. Well, they
0: also have to consider, do they want to get into debt, which Laura LaPlante's character doesn't seem to worry about, but which um, Reginald Denia Skinner does worry about. He doesn't really want to get into debt. And right. And he's sort and of that- forced into it in a way.
1: Yeah, that's where the dress suit comes in. Yes. Um, which kind of lets him be another person, you know, be a more impressive person than he mm-hmm. has been on his own resources and that's that's
0: well, what you helps you sort him of right. notice also the change in him as the film he, he actually uh, you know he's he's very good in a way. Yes, it's partly the clothes he wears that changes him, but also his demeanor, his body language, everything shows him, you know, getting more in a strength in a way. And, and more the capability to, to stand up to his boss or whatever. And I think also, it's a, in a way, it's the dance of Anna shuffle, <laughs> which seems to go on forever in the film, but really is quite important in terms of showing off the personality of both Laura LaPlante and Benjamin Denny. Yeah. So
1: was that uh, Denny's first big hit, really? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, okay. no. okay.
0: No, I think I... Um, I mean, the the lever pusher series was quite popular, but that was only two real shorts. No, I think from about 1924 onwards, he really became fairly big. Um, and also, of course, by by time of Skinner's dress suit, he is really he's billed as the biggest star at Universal, no question about it. Huh. You might think, say, Laura LaPlante, because her career at Universal lasts longer, that she, that she was the top star there. But no, it's um, Reginald Denning.
1: Yeah, I, I would not have guessed that offhand. I mean, I suppose you think Lon Chaney, I guess Lon Chaney was gone. No, Lon
0: Chaney had left by this time. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Okay. Then I don't know who it would have been if not if not Reginald Denny.
0: So. Well, you know, I mean, you've, you've got Hoot Gibson under contract, but um, and I suppose Western fans would say, "Oh, Hoot Gibson. He must have been a big star." But he really wasn't. He was very much a supporting character uh, there on the lot.
1: All right. So that's. Uh Uh, Skinner's Dress Suit, and then the others on the set, tell me about The Reckless Age, I don't really know anything about that
0: one The Reckless Age, that's the earliest film in in the set, that's from 1924 Um, it's actually based on a novel by Earl De Biggers who of course wrote the Charlie Chan books Um, and it actually had been filmed earlier in 1919 by um, Brian Washburn and it's interesting in a way that every film that Brian Washburn makes um, Reginald Denny seems to remake because of course Skinner's dress suit had also been made by uh, uh, Brian Washburn earlier and then actually um, when um, Universal decided to make um, a second um, Skinner film in the late 1920s Reginald Denny didn't do it they brought in Brian Washburn to play the character <laughs> so. Yeah. anyway um, The Reckless Age I think is it's, it's a nice film first of all It's shot, a lot of it is shot on location in the Santa Inez Valley in California. It's supposed to be Florida, but none of it is shot in Florida. It's shot either um, at um, Los Alvos in the Santa Inez Valley, as I said, um, at Universal, of course, and also the Beverly Hills Hotel. It has really nice shots of the Beverly Hills Hotel in the 1920s, and one suspects that a number of the interior scenes are actually filmed at the hotel. So that's nice. There's also an incredible, which really in a way doesn't belong in a comedy. there's an incredible scene, stunt scene um, involving a train and a taxi. The train and the taxi are traveling almost side by side, and the taxi is trying to get ahead of the train, and you'll come to a crossing, and the, train, and the taxi goes in front of the train with literally inches to spare. It's just an incredible moment. And, and obviously, there's stunt people in the taxi, not Reginald Denny and uh, the leading lady. But, I mean, you think, why the hell did they do this? I mean, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 you know, there's, there's no special effects involved here. It's just real. They actually shot it like that. Huh. And I mentioned the leading lady, and I think she also is exceedingly good. It's Ruth Dwyer, who's really not got much of a reputation. If people know her at all, it's because she's the leading lady in Buster Keaton's Seven Chances. Um, made a year later, but she's really, really good, Uh, and I really think, um, you know, it's unfortunate that she didn't have some, you know, opportunity to appear in some better films in the 20s.
1: So uh, what's the plot of The Reckless Age?
0: Oh, it's basically um, Reginald Denny works for an insurance company, and he's trying to make certain that that Roof Dwyer's character marries the character played by William Austin, who is a British lord who, it turns out, has no money. Um, but, of course, Reginald Denny falls in love with the Roof Dwyer character, and so he's sort of rather sort of frustrated here. He's, he's got to make her marry um, William Austin, but he really wants her for himself. Now, the one interesting thing here in terms of I cannot praise the Restorations by Universal enough but with The Reckless Age, it's it's a little odd because there was no uh, American print of the film extant, apparently. So Universal pulled in a print from the Netherlands, from the Eye Institute in Amsterdam, a 35 nitrate print, apparently, and they copied that. And of course, the subtitles are all in Dutch. Universal apparently didn't have a a script for this film with the original subtitles. So they translated them all from Dutch into English, and they did a very good job of it, in my opinion. They, They sound very much like silent film titles. However, the one problem is that the leading lady, played by Ruth Dwyer, is identified throughout the film as Celia, but you look in all the original publicity for the film, You look in the original novel, you look in the later um, sound remake, and she's called Cynthia, not Celia. So I think the Dutch changed the name of the leading lady to Celia. Nobody realized this, so when they translated the subtitles, they left her name as Celia, but they should have changed it to Cynthia. Now, maybe this is just nitpicking, but it's a strange mistake.
1: Well, yeah, it does kind of reveal... The, the twisted process by which we get a movie like this back.
0: Yes. I, I also think that, which I bring up in my commentary, which people don't really discuss, and that is one assumes you get a print from a foreign country. It's going to be identical to the American release print. Well, it isn't, because in the silent days, of course, um, they made two negatives, one for the U.S. release and one for the foreign release. And the foreign release negative was made from the second-best takes. Right. So in other words, the best takes in the film are in the American version. The second best takes are in the foreign version. Now there may be no difference, but there may be subtle differences, and of course we we'll never know. Right.
1: And then the third film in the set is What Happens? What happened to Jones? Which sounds like an Agatha Christie mystery to me, but
0: <laughs> no, it's well, it's basically showing you what happened to Jones, played by Reginald Denny, and it's actually. It's a farce. It's based actually on an 1897 farce by George H. Broadhurst. Now, nobody, I'm sure, remembers George H. Broadhurst today, but actually there is a reason why you would remember George H. Broadhurst. Do you know why? No. Well, if you go to New York, you'll go to the Broadhurst Theatre, maybe. Oh. Uh, and that is actually named after George H. Broadhurst.
1: And it's managed not to change its name
0: in all these and years. Yes, that's so the amazing thing. You'd think years ago somebody would have changed it, you know, to the to the John Barrymore or to the um, <laughs> to the whatever. But anyway, it's directed by William Siter who also directed um, Skinner's Dress Suit. Um, it's got some great character players in it, um, particularly Otis Harlan, who's wonderful, sort of fat, roly-poly guy. Um, Emily Fitzroy, playing his wife, and if you've ever seen Way Down East, you will remember Emily Fitzroy, she's great, absolutely great. And also it has Zazu Pitts as the maid, and she really steals the show whenever she's on screen. You know, you may not hear her voice, but she's, right. she's really wonderful. <laughs> It, it, it's a farce. It has a lot, of, uh, um, um, number of scenes in a Turkish bath with Otis Harlan and Reginald Denny. And of course, they're in the steam room and they're wearing um, uh, towels and, and females come into the steam room as well. And of course, a great deal of commotion. And of course, later to get out of the, out of the Turkish bath, they have to disguise themselves as women. It's all sort of obvious. Right, but it's, it it's, it sort of works well largely because Otis Holland and Reginald Denny can be very funny. Yeah. So when you
1: did the commentaries for these, I don't know what what was your approach? How did you think about well,
0: what to say? Well, okay. you obviously, of course, first of all, have to watch look at the film very carefully. It's got a time code on it, so you can figure out where you can talk about this or where you can talk about that. I mean, that's the—that's. It's not just a matter of research; it's a matter of timing. You've rather, got to—you're rather like being a comedian in a way. You have to understand timing <laughs> and, and where you're going to talk about this or where you're going to talk about that. So, you've got to um, view the film a number of times, really, and then decide. Well, I've got like 10 minutes here. I could talk about a subject. What subject can I talk about for 10 minutes, and, and does it fit into this particular portion of the film? Um, I mean, I try in the commentary to be as factual as possible, in discussing all the ma- all, not just the major players, the minor players, their careers, if there's any connection between them, um, you know, the source of the film, um, discussing the director, the cinematographer, the screenwriter, you know, anything else that I think is important. Um, uh, you have to. Be personal to a certain extent. I, you know, I try and be amusing whenever possible because I think it gets boring just listening to somebody talk for 90 minutes. So, but then, of course, then you're always going to offend people, whatever you say. I, I'm, <laughs> I did, I think it was actually on your, um, your, your, on your blog, I, I mentioned, I did Blood and Sand, and I mentioned that I was discussing how appalling bullfighting is and that I'm a member of PETA. And I see somebody said, well, how dare he bring up that he's a member of Peter and attack bullfighting? <laughs> well, I'm happy to attack bullfighting and to say I'm a member of Peter. And I don't quite understand why somebody would object, because you have to be personal when you're doing these things. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, I would, I would say what I think a lot of film buffs don't understand, they, they listen to the audio commentary and they don't understand there are restrictions on the, what the commentator can say. Now, not so much with Keenan law, but they pretty much allow me to say whatever I want. Um, if I'm going to say something I think is controversial, I will sometimes ask the producer, is this okay? But they usually say yes. The, the biggest problem I ever had, and I won't actually work for them anymore, is, is Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers and the films that it controls, not just Warner Brothers, but also MGM and RKO, it basically censors the audio commentaries. So the commentary, after you've recorded is sent to the legal department who reads it and then comes back to you and demands that you explain this statement or you explain that statement or you prove that is correct or this is correct. Now, I can give you a couple of examples. Pat Hanson, the, the wonderful lady who edited the AFI catalog, and I did the audio commentary for the um, Humphrey Bogart vehicle, Black Legion. And at one point during the commentary, Pat said, you know, Erin O'Brien Moore um, is a little like Joan Bennett, don't you think? And I said, yeah, I guess Joan Bennett and Erin O'Brien Moore look a little alike. The legal department sends us a memo. Can you prove that Joan Bennett looks like Erin O'Brien Moore? (laughs) Well, no, we can't prove it because it's what we think. Uh, And then there was another one, uh, same film. It opens with Humphrey Bogart working in a machine shop. And uh, we actually obviously went through the Warner Brothers archives at USC, so we know that the machine shop that he's working in is actually the machine shop on the Warner Brothers lot. And so we said, you know, he said, it's, it's interesting, the, the machine shop is actually there on the Warner Brothers lot. Legal department, can you prove that the machine shop is actually on the Warner Brothers lot? So we sent back a note saying, well, if you walk out of your office down onto the, <laughs> to, to the lot and then you walk to, to the south east corner, you'll see the machine shop and you can compare it to the one in the <laughs> film. I mean, these are the sort of insane comments that you yeah. have to deal with. The other thing is, and this is, this is perhaps most annoying with the Warner Brothers releases. You are not allowed to identify anyone unless they have, have credit. So ah. you might see a film where Toby Wing is very recognizable in the corpus, but you cannot say that is Toby Wing, third from left. So you will have film Buffs then saying, oh, what an idiot Anthony Slide is. He didn't recognize Toby <laughs> Wing. Well, he did, but he couldn't say it because Warner Brothers Legal Department wouldn't let him. Uh, you know that's the sort of thing you're up against that's why actually I don't work for one of those anymore but,
2: yeah.
0: and it's all ridiculous because in fact um, you know there's a waiver on on the on, on the um, on the release saying that um, the studio is not responsible for the comments by the by whoever so right uh, anyway it's just the things you are up against that people don't realize
1: <laughs> so do you do a full script or do you do an outline and kind of talk it exactly well I mean messages?
0: I I actually in the old days, maybe I wouldn't have a full script. But as I get so old now, I have a full script.
1: Okay.
0: I do occasionally ad-lib, and I do occasionally just put some notes in there, discuss whatever. But generally, it's a pretty full script. It runs about 80 pages, usually. Okay. I mean, you know, in the old days, I used to do a lot of audio commentaries with Bob, uh, with Bob Burchard. And I used to sort of try and make as many notes as possible, but Bob would just show up. For the recording, with a you know a pile of books in his hands, <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd be rummaging around trying to find the page uh, where he had whatever comedy he wanted to make. But um, I don't think you can work like that. I really think you need to have a script. Yeah. Also, you have the problem they don't like they don't like silence because uh, sometimes, quite frankly, when I run out of anything to say, um, and also I think perhaps people are getting bored with your voice as well.
1: talk about let's switch to your career you've been writing about film and silent film in particular forever and ever and i I hear it
0: feels like forever and ever
1: (laughs) yeah and i hear the amazing number of 60 books over the years uh, more
0: than
1: 60 more than 60 books maybe that was 10 books ago. i think
0: that was a few years
1: ago yeah um i'll tell you ones that i Used particularly back in the day when I was running my university's film program, those books that came from Dover that had pictures that you and oh, John Koval yeah. yeah. put together, mm-hmm. you know i would I would program <laughs> movies based on whether there was a really good picture to use in the calendar <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so in those books, so
0: okay, yeah, I forgotten I did actually i with Edward Wagenknecht, I did fifty great American silent films nineteen twelve to nineteen twenty for yes. Dover. Then I did 50 great or classic British films and 50 great or classic French films for Dover. Oh, and now I did great radio personalities also for Dover. I forgot about that. Yeah. That, that was that was sort of nice because basically Dover pay, pay, paid you a flat fee. They bought the copyright from you and um, you just provided them with the photographs and captions. So relative, it, it was just a matter of owning the photographs, really.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, let's go back to how you got interested in silent film in particular. You were born well into the sound era, uh, but one of those people who seemed to really drift to silent film in in the nineteen sixties. So tell me about that.
0: Well, I moved to London in the probably in the mid nineteen sixties. I worked in local government initially, and um, I was sort of lucky. I met one or two film collectors back then. And in England, back in the 1960s, there were still collectors who actually collected 35mm nitrate film. Well, looking at 8mm, 16mm or, or VHS tapes, we were looking at original nitrate prints. And these collectors, they, they would have a 35 projector set up in their living rooms. And, um, and they would, Saturday nights, there were two guys. Bert Langdon, who showed silent films, and Frank Shelton, who showed early sound films. And I mean, it was a marvelous experience because you could see how wonderful a silent film might look because you're seeing an original print, an original tinted and toned print. And with Bert Langdon, he actually lived in a council flat, subsidized housing with his wife and son. Um, And um, he had the projector set up in the living room. We didn't worry about nitrate fires or anything like that because the projector was 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 um, blocking the exit anyway. So, if there was a fire, you're all dead. So, but you never thought about you never thought about things like that back then. Um, And he had a collection of about fifty or so silent films, feature films, British and American, and he would show us a a different film every other week. Um, And I was. I was lucky. There was a very small group of us. Um, nobody really whose names would mean anything today. Kevin Browner would come occasionally, but not very often. What happened? Bert Langdon. Bert actually not only did, was it was a hand crank projector, so he was cranking the handle of the projector, and he was also playing music. He had this huge music library, 78 rpm recordings, and two turntables. So he was playing music to accompany the films, and he was doing all this by himself. One hand cranking the projector, the other putting the records on the turntable. Quite incredible. What happened was Bert had a stroke, and um, his um, left hand was paralyzed. So I took over the projection. And uh, believe me, you have not lived until you've hand-cranked <laughs> a 35-millimeter projector. You don't realize how hard it is. First of all, your, your arm is getting exhausted and you're having to watch the screen and make certain you're not cranking too fast or too slow that the, the action on screen is right. Uh, and then uh, you, so every so often you figure, oh, my hand's giving out, I'll have to change hands. So you had to do that sort of while still cranking. It, it, you realize how difficult it must have been for the project- projectionists in the early days. Anyway, that's how I became fascinated with silent film. And... Um, I was sort of lucky because I got a um, I really wanted to get out of local government, um, and I got a job with uh, Peter Cowie, who had a very small publishing house called Tantiri Press. He published International Film Guide, which I believe is still going, and he also published a series of paperback books um, in conjunction with A.S. Barnes in New Jersey. And um, I can't remember now the t- titles, but. Um, he actually gave me the opportunity to write a book called Early American Cinema, and that's how it all started. And that was in 1970. Okay. However, that was, to interrupt, that was not my early contribution to writing on film. I had also, God alone knows when it was, but back in the 60s at some time, I had been honorary secretary of an organization called the Society for Film History Research which published a little magazine called Cinema Studies and I'd also been one of the founders of a group called the Cinema Theatre Association which um, studied the um, cinemas or movie theaters as buildings and um, and I actually edited its uh, its newsletter to begin with the Cinema Theatre Association is still in existence and publishes a very good magazine now called Picture House. Anyway, that's how I thought, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot, thought about something else. And I also, back in 1968, I, with, with a guy named Paul O'Dell, I co-founded, co-published, co-edited a magazine called The Silent Picture, which was devoted to the art and history of silent film. It was a quarterly. And uh, it was amazing back then. We, we, we got a number of major, major figures um, to write for us, Um, And we would actually stand outside the National Film Theater selling the magazine to anybody who was willing to pay two shillings and sixpence, I think it was. (laughs) So I do go back a very long, long way. (laughs) So when did you come to the U.S.? I came to America in 1971. I had a scholarship with the American Film Institute, Louis V. Mayer Research Scholarship. Um, And that was a result of um, early American cinema. I... I, I did very little, really. I submitted the book and asked for a grant, and they gave me a grant of $9,000, which was a huge amount of money to me back then, and more money than I ever earned. And so I, I came to America. Um, I was a year basically in Los Angeles, <clears throat> excuse me, and then I really didn't want to go back to England particularly. So I, I was lucky I got offered a job with the American Film Institute catalog, setting up the 1911 to 1920 volume of the catalog. And then from that, I went on to become associate archivist at the American Film Institute at the Kennedy Center. Let's talk
1: about the AFI catalog because I think a lot of people don't know about that. um, But long before there was any IMDb or any other resource like that, this was a project to basically document all of American film in a series of of volumes. So tell me about that.
0: Well, I I mean, it's incredibly important, and it really annoys me that people don't remember it or are not aware of it. Um, Basically, decade by decade, it published complete, very, very complete credits, for film's synopses, usually based on a viewing of the film, and it also subject indexed the film as well. Um, each, each decade usually had two volumes, except I think the 30s and 40s had three volumes. Um, and for much of its life, it was edited by Pat Hanson, Patricia King Hanson, who died last year. Uh, And I am very upset that nobody really has acknowledged, you know, the contribution she made to film history. Um, There should be some permanent memorial to Pat for what she did. Um, So anyway, um, it's the first volume didn't publish in any sort of order. So the first volume was devoted to the 1920s. Then they decided to do the 1960s next because they figured that would be easy. But then they didn't realize how do you determine what is an American film then, because so many films, of course, have fallen um, money involved. Um, And also they didn't, of course, take into account the fact that what about pornography? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There were so many pornographic films being made in America. They're being shown in movie theaters. Um, and so actually a, a very concerted effort was made to include all the pornographic films. And I think this was probably ultimately a mistake because it really dragged the catalog on, on for years before publication. But anyway, it took forever. Well, that, at that point, basically Pat Hansen took over and she brought out the 1911 to 1920 volume, the um, 19. Uh, Thirty-one to 1940, the 1941 to 1950, and the 1951 to 1960 volumes. Um, and she was, I, I mean, I cannot say em- um, enough about her.
1: So wh- what was the process by which, how, how they put it together?
0: Well, I mean, you basically have to compile a master list of films, first of all. Um, and that's usually done. Then you've got to, you know, compare, pile indexes of all the various publications you're using, Verati, um Moving Picture World, uh, Motion Picture Herald, uh, New York Times, and so forth. And, and you have to be very careful, because a lot of film buffs criticize the AFI catalog. They say, oh, this feature film's missing, that feature film's missing. No, it isn't missing. Sometimes a feature film has to be over 40 minutes in length. So if a film runs 39 minutes, it's not a feature film. It doesn't belong in the catalog. Right. Also, you find in Film Daily, and Hollywood Reporter as well, announcements of films, but they're never actually made. So you'll find an announcement with giving cast credits, even a synopsis, but the film was never made, and so it's not in the catalogue. You always have to bear that in mind. Also, can I just here point out as well that you know, IMDB really wouldn't exist without the AFI sure. catalogue, because there's no question that they, quote, steal, unquote, most of their credit from the AFI catalogue. And I do know that many cease and desist letters have been sent <laughs> through the years from the AFI to the IMDB.
1: Well, and I think that points to the real importance of it, was that you can't even know what all exists in the field of study until someone documents its existence. Yes, and that's what that's what this project did. You know, it really laid out the size and scope of American film over the decades.
0: Sure, and 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 it was while I'm criticizing IMDb, I should point out that the AFI catalog really is accessible to anybody and can be used by anybody. So in a way, there's nothing stopping you, particularly if you're compiling a filmography. You're obviously going to use the AFI catalog.
1: Um, so you worked on that? Was does is yours the chat, the section of it that had the uh, the fake film marooned souls in it, or was that the twenties volume? I
0: think that was. I, I'm not certain. It's either twenties or thirties, I believe, and I'm not certain that's the only fake film. <laughs>
1: There may have been others that were intentional. There's probably one, a few of those. I mean, but
0: they do that to stop anybody from just reprinting the volume in its entirety. Right. And they can prove it's a copyright violation. I mean, you'll find that in other things. For example, for British films, you always use Dennis Gifford's British film catalog, but he has at least one fake film in there. Film directed by Val Guest doesn't exist. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I did a... A book that compiled different movie awards back in the '90s, mm-hmm. and one of the things I found, someone slipped and put a—you know—J. Carol Nash was nominated one year for supporting actor for a medal for Benny, mm-hmm. and someone, somebody's typist slipped and put in J. Carol Nash for Gaslight, which no. of course he's not in at all. No, and you could see—I mean, that was probably happened in the '50s. And you could just see as you compared other sources, that kept recurring. And then you knew who was copying <laughs> from what over the years. Yes. So did oh, they... you,
0: you noticed that a lot, in fact. I, I know um, the, uh, when uh, Iris Barry and Eileen Bowser compiled the little book on D.W. Griffith that the Museum of Modern Art published uh, back in the day, there, there were some typos in that. Uh, in their filmographies. And the same typos reappear in all the other filmographies yeah. relating to D.W. Griffith. So you can tell what the source is.
1: Yeah. Who are you going to trust if not Iris Berry uh, no, D.W. No. Griffith? <laughs> uh, all right. So you, you did the... Uh, worked on the AFI books and uh, along the way um, you wrote a book called Nitrate Won't Wait.
0: Yeah, uh, that was many, many years later. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. It uh, about...
0: I think it was about 20, 25 years ago. Yeah,
1: okay. Leonard, like um, well, you tell me, what, was, what were major ones along the way that you think? Uh...
0: Well, um, I think the, in 1975, the films of D.W. Griffith, which I co-wrote with Edward Wagonecht, because I really regard Edward Wagonecht as my mentor. Um, he wrote movies in the Age of Innocence, of course. Yeah. uh you know a major figure in my opinion in 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 writings on film history um whatever i mean there's a, there's a lot of books i like they're not necessarily major books the griffith actresses for example which is basically sort of chapters on people like Lillian Gish, blanche sweet miriam cooper and so forth right.
2: um
0: that's a book i like a lot in fact i sort of I sort of cherish my copy of the book, because it's actually inscribed by Lillian, by Blanche Sweet, oh,
2: nice. by
0: uh, Griffith's widow, Evelyn Baldwin, by Marjorie Wilson. Oh, I can't remember who else. Many, many sort of people who work with Griffith. So that, to me, is a treasured volume. Um, anyway, um, I think the, the American film industry, a historical dictionary, that's a very useful reference work. Oh, Early Women Direct, Early Women Directors. I was that's just going to important. mention
1: that, because I've got uh, The Silent Feminists here, America's First Women Directors, and you also wrote a book on Lois Weber.
0: Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I've written a lot about, about women in silent film, the women filmmakers. I mean, Early Women Directors was published in 1978, and that's really the first volume to look at the role of women filmmakers in American silent film. Very, very important in my opinion. The 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 revised edition is called the Silent Feminists. Oh, okay. Uh, and then, of course, I wrote the first biography of Lois Weber. I also edited the memoirs of Alice Guy Blaché. It sort of gets me a little annoyed today. You always hear women f- film scholars going, "Oh, men didn't care about it. That's why women are forgotten." And I, I actually was at, um, at a theater in Santa Monica where somebody said this. I actually said, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> I was there back then, and I wrote about all these women, and nobody gave a damn about yeah. <laughs> it.
1: So, <laughs> well, yeah, I kind of feel that Alice Gieblashe is on like, her third rediscovery at this point, at least. But
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I am actually in Pamela Green's documentary, Be Natural, uh, on Alaski Blachet, so and yeah. I, I, I really think that's a very good documentary.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
0: I, but I also might mention a documentary made by the National Film Board of Canada, directed by Marquise Lepage, called um, "The Forgotten Garden," which is also about Alaski, and that is very good as well.
1: Yeah, and that was it was like twenty years
0: before. Was, that was a long, long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I Everything remember I've done is a long, long time ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I remember too. Uh, when uh, Charles Musser's before the Nickelodeon program, uh, mm-hmm. g- you know, came along. I mean, it wasn't explicitly about Blaché, but there were a lot of her films in it. It was clear that they considered her major, and audiences, I think, too, you know, yeah. kind of got to know that her name was a guarantee that a good one was coming in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, you yeah. know, the Solax logo or whatever was, sure. you know, th- oh, this is going to be a good
0: one. So, she's, I mean, one of the criticisms of Pamela Green's documentary is the fact that it's the untold story but it isn't the untold story right because it's been told many times yeah although pamela has a lot of material in the film that no one has ever um been aware of before
1: yeah i, I can, think that I, justifies the title is the things that she yeah. dug up so
0: yeah i mean particularly i was astounded that she found out that Maliski's um, husband her was having an affair with lois weber and that i have never heard any reference to that ever so and, and, but um, Pamela found correspondence proving it.
1: So. Well, and tell us about, yeah, Lois Weber, what's, what's your feeling about her?
0: I think she's very, very important. Um, I think she is the most important female film director in American history. Um, I compare her to D.W. Griffith because, like Griffith, she's an auteur. She makes films on subjects she believes in. Um, you know, be it about um, birth control, capital punishment hypocrisy or whatever. Um, And I think, in a way, she's been somewhat neglected because she's a fairly conservative filmmaker. For example, she is opposed to abortion. Right. And and that turns a lot of female scholars off. They don't like that. Um, It's rather like, you know, um, when people talk about the greatest women politicians, they always want to avoid Margaret Thatcher because of her (laughs) politics. Well, people tend to avoid Lois Webber because of her politics. And I guess today we're, we're going to uh, avoid D.W. Griffith because of his politics. So. Right.
1: Are there other women directors? I mean, mm-hmm. since you wrote a book subtitled America's First Women Directors, others that you would make a case for as being you know, major figures we should pay more attention to? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, the problem is that usually there's, there's not a lot of their films survive. Uh, we were talking earlier about Kino Lorba, and they, of course, put out this huge box set. Of almost every um, silent film, American silent film directed by a woman. And there are some interesting titles in there. Ida Mae Park, for example, who was at Universal, I think was really after Lois Weber was the most important director at Universal. And there's a, at least one of her films there because I did the audio commentary for it. And um, then there's a woman named um, Ruth Baldwin, nobody remembers. She made a Western called 49 to 17, which I also did the audio commentary for, and that's in the box set. So, oh, and then in the 20s, you have Mrs. Wallace-Reed, who I think is is very important, very intelligent woman. Um, But the problem often is that she doesn't actually take directorial credit. She is usually the producer, and we don't know to what extent she was involved in the direction. For example, her most famous film, The Red Kimona, um, we know she sat on the set during the entire production, so she was probably telling the credited male director what to do. But that's just supposition. We don't know.
1: Well, yeah, and even Weber. I mean, a lot of her early films are credited to to her and uh, her yeah. husband, Philip Smalley. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, there you have the issue, of course, is you don't really believe Philip Smalley directed any of the films. They were all Lois Webber. So, but he also was always on the set because apparently, and this sounds very um, old-fashioned and Victorian, but she needed to have a man's opinion. She needed to have a... A man's approval, so she would have him there, telling her she was doing okay, yeah. and he, of course, was having an affair with just about anybody <laughs> to lay his hands right. on.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, th- I think a lot of people that might be a little hard to swallow, wanting to give him any credit. If you know, well, I think these days
0: pe- people don't, and maybe may- I, I don't. I don't believe he deserves any credit. Now, I do believe in Herbert Blachet's case, he did direct films, and after Aliski. G- stop making films he continued directing through into the mid 1920s so he obviously was competent I mean why would they keep giving him jobs if he wasn't
1: right right. so
0: I think it is unfair somehow to dismiss Herbert Blaschet, you know um, the way he, we do
1: yeah where Weber we know that she worked on her own after a certain mm-hmm. point so yeah that suggests pretty strongly that that she was in charge all along um, well, and you also out in Los Angeles. I mean, you got to know a lot of the surviving silent film stars. And you know, one of one of my favorite of your books uh, that I already had. I didn't have to sneak off to the library this week and catch them out of it. But uh, Silent Players, which is Silent
0: Topics, I think. Well, I have you're right, Silent Players. I, I have Silent pardon. Topics. I beg but your pardon. I beg <laughs> your pardon. You see, I can't even remember the titles of your my own, own book. books. Yeah. <laughs> Um no silent players you're correct.
1: <laughs> yeah and it, I mean it's just is really a wonderful book in that it's it's kind of just the chatty memories of these people in later life some of them were quite charming and lovable some of them were fairly <laughs> fairly difficult to take yeah. Um you know experiencing that time when they were still with us and yeah were and I think back sometimes they the,
0: weren't the same Today, there's so many film buffs, so many autograph collectors out there that no nobody from the past is going to be forgotten. There's always going to be people desperate to talk to them, desperate for their autograph. But back, you know, when I was here in Los, first in Los Angeles in the early 1970s, it wasn't quite the same. You could, it was easier to to meet people and interview them. Um, so I was sort of lucky. And then the thing was. A lot of them, we almost, we really became friends. They would come over to my house for dinner. We would have screenings here of their films. So, um, I think you get to know a person more not when you just interview them once, but when you're dealing with them on a social level. I mean, that's very important. You, I mean, I, I know I've sort of said to somebody, I remember once. This is not a, from the silent era, but Rose Hobart. Used to come over regularly, and somebody had asked me, "Can you ask Rose Hobart about Colin Ply, because she worked on stage with him?" And I asked her. And she said, "Oh, she said, oh, he just he was just wonderful, wonderful man." I said, "Well, is that true?" She said, "No, not really." But um, <laughs> but I, when people ask, I tell them that. I don't tell them the truth. Yeah. Uh, and that's you know that is sadly the way it is. I I remember actually Blanche Sweet um, told me once that. Somebody had written her and asked her about something and she had no idea. So she went to the Museum of Modern Art and researched it. (laughs) She could respond on a personal level, although she had no recollection whatsoever of it. And I've had people like Blanche told me something about D.W. Griffith and told me to promise never to say anything about it. I never have. So there are times when I have been told not to say something. But generally, these people are quite happy to share knowledge, information, or whatever, and happy for me to pass it on.
1: Well, yeah, no, I remember the one talking, Ralph Graves.
0: Yeah, I was going to say Ralph Graves is the most, con- I don't know why it's so controversial at all, but this seems to upset people so much, uh, or a few people anyway. Um, okay, so my partner, Bob Gitt and I, we drove up to Santa Barbara, and we were invited to spend the day with Ralph Graves and his wife, who was very nice. And we got there in the morning, Ralph was drinking, and recorded um, an interview in which he talked quite openly about um, his gay relationships, about having an affair. I mean, the biggest thing bombshell he dropped, in a way, was the fact that for, I think, two years he'd had an affair with Max Sennett. And this seems, I don't know why this upsets people so much, because when you think about it, Max Sennett always lived with his mother, he never married. Um, he could very well have been gay. Anyway, so no, people don't like this. Uh, and we, then we I think we left them in the afternoon just to walk around Santa Barbara. And then we came back and we had dinner there, talked some more. His wife was there the whole time. Occasionally she would interrupt and say, oh, that, that Ralph, you're exaggerating, whatever. But oh, actually Ralph Graves told us one point about, I can't remember his being in bed with his wife and W.C. Fields and Barrymore climbed into bed with them, <laughs> and something like that. And his wife said, it wasn't me, it was another wife. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I don't understand why this upsets people. Ralph was perfectly happy telling these stories. It wasn't, he wasn't saying it in a drunken stupor. He, he was perfectly lucid. Anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. And just the frankness of that... Um, but I, I think that's, that's what I find charming about the book is, I mean, it really is just genuine friendship. And sometimes it can get a little catty and sometimes it's, it's moving and sometimes
0: they're kind of a well, pill, pill to be with. You
1: know, it's, well, I it's mean, reality. So, uh, actually
0: people have said to me, well, how could you stand being with this woman? So she, like Jetta Gudal people usually bring up. Yeah. So she was extremely difficult. But you are aware you are there with a major silent star. And, other, and at times it is embarrassing, and particularly when she would have temper tantrums in restaurants. Um, but, you know, you just accept it. I mean, Jetta I know, had that we went out for dinner once and she wanted to sit at, at a round, circular table. And the restaurant only had square tables. I've never known such a tantrum she had. <laughs> they have to find a circular table. We don't have any circular tables, madam. But I want a circular table. You know, I mean, this is what you're dealing with, and you just have to learn to be very quiet and not say anything. Right, right.
1: <laughs> well, that that's a book that I found quite charming, and uh, another one that was really interesting. I mean, it gets a little seedy at times, but magnificent obsession, which mm-hmm. is about film buffs, collectors. I mean, really, it it kind of raises the question, and I think a lot of us who, you know, are involved with old film. Question that about ourselves sometimes. It's like, at what point does being a fan shade over into being a nut, into being um, socially dysfunctional <laughs> about it? And is and how bad is that? I mean, there there are certainly people that I know who might meet that definition, but I enjoy their company anyway. And there are others <laughs> I steer away from. So,
0: well, I would say I tend to steer away from, this, um, from some <laughs> of them. Uh, I mean, I certainly, through the years, I used to go to the CinEcon convention. And I often used to have to bring one or two silent people that I knew with me just, you know, because they wanted them there. And sometimes the behavior of the fans was very embarrassing. I remember taking Ruth Clifford once, and she went to, to, to the toilet. And, and this one fan followed her into the toilet. That's what I my like. <laughs> God. But then I was telling this to actually to Jimmy Facia, who's Lillian Gish's manager. And he said we, I had, he had the same problem with Lillian Gish. She was sitting on the toilet and some male fan came in and was passing things under the door for her to sign, to sign <laughs> while she's sitting on the toilet. Now, I think that is unacceptable behavior. Yes. Um, but uh, the strange thing, first of all, I'd like to say Magnificent Obsession, I think, has you know, very good material on subjects not usually discussed. For example, history of films in review. I don't think anybody's done such a careful analytical study of the history of films in review as I do there. Um, my discussion of really the first major film, book, film buff, Chaw Mank. You won't find material on him anywhere else. So there's a lot of material in that book that I think has lasting value. And, and surprising, I have to say, I have received so many emails from film buffs telling me how much they love the book and why aren't they in it? Yeah, um, and I, I mean, I actually I could do a second book and and just simply put all these people in who insist they want to be in the book. It's, and I pointed out, you know, the book's really about people who are dead. Yeah, I don't really discuss uh, living film buffs um, in any excuse me in any detail. But um.
1: right, well, I mean, yeah. What tell me what your what's kind of the thesis of the book in terms of Film buffism, film fanaticism, all those things.
0: Well, I think the thing was, you know, I've met so many film fanatics, shall we call them, through the years. And I thought, like, I, you know, and I've got lots of stories about them, and I wanted to share these stories. But I wanted also to have some, you know, uh, carefully documented factual information as well. A lot of the things, obviously there is no documentation there are no citations you can give Right. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: and the thing is you know i mean it's, don't forget it's not just me telling these stories um lennon Maltin says an awful lot in the book about film buffs particularly at the theodore huff society you know like the guy who brought the monkey inside his jacket to the screenings and the <laughs> monkey was better behaved than most of the film buffs and things <laughs> like that so
1: yeah. Well, I was just reading I I was leafing through it this morning and the part about David Bradley who is such oh. an interesting and terrifying
0: character. Yeah, I mean David Bradley is a fascinating character. I, I mean I knew him quite well. Um he was you know, an ultimate bully, um and a racist. Um and he was quite he could be quite scary. I think he was also a bit of a coward if you actually stood up to him he'd back down. But um he, he, he was lucky. He was very wealthy. He came from a wealthy Chicago family. And many times he would claim that his father was Preston Sturgis because Preston Sturgis had a um, relationship with his mother. But I don't believe that's true. Um, and he would have these famous New Year's Day parties um, where he would fly out his mother from Chicago to make the sandwiches because he wouldn't hire, hire a, a catering service. So she had to make the sandwiches. And he would, I don't know why these film people showed up. I have no idea. I, if I had been them, I would refuse to go. But he would have, uh, and he would take, make home movies in 16mm of them silent. Um, and he would shoot them, say, going to the um, bowl of punch and getting a glass of punch. And then he would say, no, do it again, do it again. So they'd have to pour the, the glass back <laughs> into the bowl and do it again till he got it right. Uh, And you would be walking up the steps to the house, and um, he'd suddenly appear with his camera, and he'd tell you, go down the steps, come up again, uh, and, and it would be like this. And then the high spot of the event, late afternoon, was when he showed the movies from last year, and he would have all the people sitting around. And he would show the movies, and he'd say, she's dead, he's dead. <laughs> and, then, and then he would have a flashlight, and if this person was on screen and was also sitting there, he'd shine the flashlight on them. Um, now, tell me, is this sane behavior? No, it isn't. Um, he was actually fired by UCLA. He used to, to, to teach there, but I mean, I think the students objected to him. Um, I, I remember once he was telling me about there was an organist named Chauncey Haynes who he hated because apparently he'd loaned a film to Chauncey Haynes and Chauncey Haynes had scratched it. And he grabbed hold of my hand and he was holding each finger and he was telling me, I want to break every finger in Chauncey Haynes' hand. And I'm saying, David, let go of my hand, please. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm actually leaving out some of the more... mm, Um, material I don't know is suitable for for, for, radio (laughs) 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 leaving out all the four letter words and all the racist um, comments
1: it's interesting to me just as a picture of of a hothouse culture that was created by the rarity of what everybody was after mm -hmm. you know these films if you had the film you had prestige you were the only one and if you wanted the film you might get up to all kinds of skullduggery
0: sure no, I think also, you know, you have to remember back then you didn't have TCM, you didn't have DVDs and Blu-rays. So if you wanted to see a film, you had to see it usually on 16 millimeter, and find a collector who had it. So you have to, you were going to have to be nice to the collector to let him see you see the film. That's the way it was.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I was Someone told me a story about David Bradley once. Apparently he had bribed the local FedEx office or something (laughs) and would get his hands on things passing through and copy them quick overnight. And one of the films that was mentioned that he got that way to me by this collector uh, is now available from Kino on their Fritz Lang set. So, it just shows how one well, day's would, rarity is another day's common thing. Yeah. So
0: Yeah, well, I mean, he would certainly, he would rent films regularly from the Museum of Modern Art and then copy them and, and, and return them. So every film in the Museum of Modern Art, rental library he had. He, I certainly didn't worry about um, ethics, morality, or even legality when it came to getting films. But then most film collectors are really like that. I could name other collectors, but I won't, um, who did similar films. There used to be a collector in Britain, in fact. Um, I think he's still alive, so I won't say who it is. Um, (laughs) But he used to bribe the projectionist at the National Film Theatre. And so when the National Film Theatre got in a rare film, say, from a foreign archive, at the end of the screening, the projectionist would get it to the collector who would get it to a lab, and then it would be returned to the National Film Theatre the next day, ready for shipment back.
1: Yeah, I mean there's just no comparison now to the the easy access we have to the to the swashbuckling it took to be a film collector back then.
0: No, I mean there's you know everything is so accessible these days. People that's the that's the other thing that bothers me in a way is that people don't realize in the past how hard it was to write about films because you didn't have the internet, you didn't have all the material there. You had to go to a library, you had to go to an archive for written materials. And you had to uh, usually go to an archive like the Library of Congress or the Museum of Modern Art if you wanted to see the film.
1: Yeah, no, our our accessibility is just... It's a different world, and it changed very quickly
0: in a lot of ways. Yeah, and in a way, I mean, I feel sorry that... I think some great writers from the past are so forgotten, like DeWitt Bodine, who used to write films in review. He He was a really nice guy. He wrote some great pieces. Okay, there's a few errors in them, so what? But he did all this, basically just sitting in the Motion Picture Academy library, um, and based on also his knowledge and the people that he'd met through the years. And, uh, you know, for their day, these are wonderful career articles, and it's so sad nobody remembers him. Used to be another guy, Jack Spears. I just remembered. He was a doctor in Tulsa, Oklahoma. and He used to write the films in review. He did some very good pieces as well.
1: So. Yeah, I don't remember Spears, but I remember Bodine. That was one of the first things when you got films in review, mm-hmm. you, look, you looked at that to see what, uh, you know, to see what he was writing about because he really knew his stuff. He was he was like Everson and he was so. Deeply steeped in it, and then you read (laughs) Paige Cook to see who you know which actress he was maligning and insulting in uh, his music reviews.
0: Yeah, no, Page Cook was something else because his real name was Charles Boyer, which is uh, is sort of funny.
1: (laughs) That that is funny. Uh, I don't know any other any other of your books that you want to to mention.
0: Well, I, I sort of like, um, I, I did an interview book with André de Toff, the man who made um, House of Wax, used to know André very well. Um, that book was published by Faber and Faber and still in print. Actually, I like the idea that that I'm published by Faber and Faber and Faber and Faber published T.S. Eliot. makes me yeah. feel good. <laughs> um, so, um, and that's an example of somebody who, um, André de Toff, whom we knew very well, um, in fact, we used to uh, Bob and I used to go on vacation with him and his wife Anne, yeah.
2: uh,
0: and Anne still comes over here regularly for dinner. So that was a very close relationship we had, and 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 the manner in which the book was written, in fact, is interesting because people think, oh, you know, it's an interview book, and they say, oh, sometimes Andre Daut gets really angry with Slide and yells at him and whatever, and they don't seem to realize it's all fake.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, we basically. We sat in his apartment at we'd start about nine in the morning. He'd make some Danish pastry in the microwave and we'd have a pastry and coffee. And then I would sit at the computer and he'd sit opposite me and I would say, shall I ask you this, Andre? He said, yes. And he said, oh, well, at this point, why don't I get angry? And I tell you, <laughs> you know, and that's how we did it. No, I, you know, nobody understands really what's involved, but there was no, there was no um, tape recorder involved at all.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great. You were directed by Andre De Toth. I will yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah, and that's a good example of the kind of person that might not get interviewed before they're gone. Um, everybody wants to talk to John Ford, but Andre De Toth, who you know, I I think he's one of those people that if something's going to be on TCM or whatever, I'll automatically give it a look because it's probably pretty mm-hmm. good.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I think he has a bigger reputation abroad. I was amazed. I had. Somebody came here from France to, to interview me. They said they were putting out Indian fighter, fighter on Blu-ray in France and they wanted an interview with me or some other people. I thought they were making a documentary. And so they interviewed me for about an hour, in fact, on film. or well, actually, on digital. Um, and then when the thing came out, I'm amazed suddenly to discover that I'm now suddenly a film in my own right. I mean, there's just a 40-minute <laughs> film about me talking about Andre. Uh, and I must say this is the most beautiful presentation I've ever seen of a Blu-ray. They've done it in the form of a book. So you have the the Blu-ray disc in one cover and you have the DVD disc in the other cover, and then you have like 50 pages of text. Oh, nice. Beautiful volume. Um, but not available in this country.
1: So. Well, like film collectors of old, we have our ways, don't we? So
0: Well, actually, I, I mean, I found it, I, mean, I got a copy eventually. I had to go to Amazon fans yeah. to get it, yeah. But, uh, yeah,
1: and get your, you, you have a uh, region-free Blu-ray player. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I don't know how you could exist without a region, exactly. region-free player. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. You'd have to live like normal people. Yes, yes. Who, who would want to do that? Um, I don't know, anything else that that we should talk about?
0: Um, well, I know, well, let me say that um, I guess somebody who I've known since the Mid 1970s, and is still alive, um, and who is, I believe, the oldest living actor is Norman Lloyd, who is All 105, right. will be 106 in November, and I'm glad to say, although he is actually in lockdown, I speak to him every other week at least, just to see how he is, and he is absolutely fine. I can tell his fans he, um, he is as mentally alert as ever. He's waiting for another part. Um, in fact, Judd Apatow, he was in Judd Apatow's train wreck, and Judd Apatow offered him a role, but Norman turned it down. <laughs> so I said, how do you turn down Judd Apatow? Oh, it wasn't a very good part of it, yes. right. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so I'm glad to say I think of all the all the stars of the past that i know, Norman is the last. Although I, I, I lie, I just remember Marsha Hunt is still alive. That's right. She's a yeah. 101, I think. Right.
1: Um. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking. It's been, it's been fun to I've go through, it. through a, a small amount of your written work here. No, sure I'll, I'll
0: think about all these books I should have talked about. The trouble I have is actually some years back, somebody said to me, I want to buy that book you did about film periodicals. What's it called? And I said, I don't remember. And I literally <laughs> couldn't remember. Yeah. So that's the way it is. I have actually, I believe written about eighty something books and I have edited at least a hundred and fifty other volumes. So it's quite an exhausting career, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's coming up then? What can we plug in advance?
0: Oh well nothing very exciting and nothing anybody in America would want to read. But actually um Ben Omart, who owns Bear Manor, is a good friend of mine and Bear Manor of course puts out a lot of unusual book, shall we say, that you wouldn't think there's any market for. And Ben is a big fan of British radio comedy of the past.
2: Oh my. So
0: he actually asked me some years back if I would do a book on Jimmy Edwards, I told him no, because there's no money in it. And then he offered actually to pay me in advance if I did it. So I said, oh, well, I'm a big fan of Jimmy Edwards. I'll definitely do that. So I did that. And, that, and then I subsequently did a book for him and Arthur Askey, another British comedian you won't right. know. you have is coming...
1: heard of Arthur Askey, at least.
0: Okay, well, actually, some of his films are available on YouTube. Yeah. Um, so the best one is Miss London Limited. Anyway, so that book is coming out as we speak. And then Ben just asked me this week to do another book for him, which is Ted Ray, who is totally forgotten today, he used to have a radio show called Razor Love, and um, not too many films. So it, it just keeps me busy. I think it keeps me off the streets, keeps me right. doing something, which is good. I have to stay active.
1: Thanks to my guest, Anthony Slide. Music is by Kevin MacLeod, with a nod this time to Scott Joplin. There will be links to lots and lots of things in the show post at Nitrateville.com. Nitrateville Radio will be taking the rest of the summer off, but return after Labor Day. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.
0: My apologies, Commodore
2: Schmidlap.